Well, it is a topic that we discuss quite often on this program, ride-sharing, ride-hailing in BC, and the push to bring companies such as Uber and Lyft to this province. Well, my next guest has written about this. It's an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail, and Alex Rosenblatt joins us on the line now to talk more about this. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Uh, The title of this piece, Uber, shows us that technology is political, not neutral. And you've written about a part of Uber, a part of of, of ride sharing that we don't often talk about. The the conversation is often about why don't we have it here in Vancouver and in other parts of Metro Vancouver and B.C. Uh, Walk us through, if you can, though, what you were looking at in this piece. So for years, I was following Uber drivers in cities where they were working underground and then where they became legitimate after Uber had established itself officially because it often starts out in a legal gray zone. So drivers would work furtively by trying to hide the fact that they were picking up passengers. You pretend you were their friend and they would ally with the company and Uber would manage to create a base of consumers that could then lobby for the company to become legitimate despite you know, efforts by the city to crack down or opposition from local taxi drivers. And that's all very interesting. But as soon as Uber becomes entrenched, the power dynamics of that relationship between drivers and the company starts to change. Uber typically floods the market with new hires and reduces the rates that drivers are paid at. At that point, as we can see in New York City, where Uber has been entrenched for a long time, the city often has a chance to intervene and say, wait a minute, we need to create a living wage for all the drivers, whether they're taxi or ride hail. And you've written about the experience in New York as well and uh, some of the issues. And I think this is a figure that people might find a bit surprising in that uh, you you write that in 2014, 2015, it was advertised that the median income for an Uber driver was around $90,000 U.S. per year, which simply wasn't true. That's correct. I mean, as Uber rose to prominence, it made a lot of promises to the public, to drivers, to cities. One of those promises was that Uber could scale entrepreneurship for the masses with technology, which was very appealing, especially in the aftermath of the Great Recession. You know, drivers I would meet from Colorado to Texas would say, look, my business went under or I lost my job or I needed another source of income. And if you could be hired within a couple of days and start earning money, that seems like a real boon, especially if it was going to be a pathway to the middle class. Income figures like $90,000 a year seem very promising. But like many of the promises of the sharing economy, they falter upon closer examination. Drivers are actually taking home maybe eleven, a little over $11 an hour you know, after deducting for Uber's fees as well as for their own expenses, but not even accounting for the taxes they have to pay as independent contractors. And while a lot of people are willing to run errands, very few are prepared to run their own business. So what I would find over four years of research with drivers across the U.S. and Canada is that It was very quick to get started. You could be hired in a matter of days, but it took a couple of months before drivers became aware of their full expenses. At the beginning, they're mostly just accounting for gas. Right. So how how does Uber get around that, or how does it deal with that? When you, you write about it, the fact that they kind of live in this legal gray zone. Well, it uses the logic of technology exceptionalism. Uh, We've heard a lot about disruption and sort of the 
prominence of innovation that can create more efficient services. And I think that's partially why companies like Uber are so popular for consumers. They provide a real benefit. I mean, you can hail a ride much more efficiently than you could with taxis. And there's just many more opportunities for people to participate in basically mass private transportation uh, than there were before. But at the same time, Uber comes in and says, look, we don't have to subscribe to the transportation regulations that our competitors, you know, the taxi industry, have to because we're a technology company. We're just a platform. We're like connected tissue that connects a driver who can supply a ride with a passenger in need of one. Our platform is not so distinct uh, we're also different than Facebook or Google, which also narrate themselves as neutral platforms that merely curate our news feeds or surface uh, information results upon a Google query through neutral algorithms. But of course, Uber brings both the logic of neutral algorithms and the logic of technology exceptionalism to the world of transportation and to the world of work. And so when Uber comes in and says, we're just a technology company, they're also implying, and they've really made this argument, that they don't have to provide accessible services under transportation laws, such as for under the Americans with Disabilities Act in the U.S., because we're a technology company. And so you start to see that the culture of technology that has so much allure also ends up being quite disruptive to a much more regulated environment. And interesting when you said they're competitors, because I think even at some sometimes Uber won't even call themselves a competitor to taxis. They say they're not there to compete, that they're a complement or they're a totally different service. Well, they've made a lot of different arguments in a lot of different places. You know, it's it's been quite interesting to watch that arbitrage because Uber pivots very easily and adapts very easily to the different battles it confronts. And I think a lesson it probably learned from another technology legacy company, Google, was that it should dress up what it's doing, which is, might be disruptive, in morally persuasive causes. So the city of Austin, for example, in 2016, tried to pass an ordinance that would require ride-hail drivers to undergo fingerprint-based background checks. And that's what they're competitors in the taxi industry would be expected to do as well. While drivers do undergo background checks to work for Uber, Lyft, and other ride-hail companies, they're quite cursory. They, they can be completed in a matter of days uh, or a week, and so drivers can be on the road driving very quickly. And so when the city came along and said, okay, look, we need to ensure safety for our broader you know, passengers and for the city and for drivers, uh, and we're going to do it through fingerprint-based background checks, Uber said, well, you know, people of color have experienced disproportionate criminalization. And so there might be something on their record that would disqualify them. And so we're going to take a stand against this law um, on the premise that it is unfair to people of color, which is a very morally persuasive argument. But if you dig a little deeper, that same morally persuasive argument actually masks a business reason for why they wouldn't want fingerprint-based background checks, which is that they rely on very high churn in their workforce. After six months on the job, drivers, uh, 68% of drivers have left because it takes, you know, they might need it as a stopgap solution, but for a lot of drivers, it takes a couple months to figure out what they're really earning, what the real conditions of work are. And so the business model relies on this constant churn of drivers, and therefore if they had to wait four months for each, each driver to undergo a background check, it could hurt their business model. And so you end up with these really strong clashes between the company, the city, and a whole bunch of other stakeholders in Uber's future.
And you also write about the fact that the, the political, how it has become political and that the Austin is an example of, of, of this company under the guise of taking the moral high ground. Uh, but also they do, and it's become an issue in BC, a political issue as well. Uh, they do get involved in that, don't they? They do everywhere they go. <laughs> I mean, part of the interesting thing about Uber is that even if it's providing taxi-like services, it comes to represent a whole lot more because it's a political giant. I mean, it lobbied states across the U.S. to pass legislation that could classify drivers as independent contractors, for example, or override municipal-level regulations. And so it's never just a taxi company. It's a massive billion-dollar technology giant. And to me, a lot of how Uber treats its drivers reflects how consumers of technology services are treated as well. It's not just that Uber is disruptive to you know, regulatory efforts. It's that when it comes to employment, Uber manages drivers with algorithms, which are narrated in popular uh, imagination as neutral. And in this way, Uber can separate its employment relationship between itself and its drivers while still standardizing the services that they provide. So drivers are classified as independent contractors. Uber bills them as entrepreneurs. And I found in my research that drivers are actually, they have a boss. It's just an algorithmic one. And so Uber can actually collect quite granular data on how drivers behave at work, intervene on a moment's notice when they're trying to log off, and standardize the behaviors of drivers across you know, hundreds of cities, which is quite remarkable and a business innovation that I think is quite attractive to lots of different industries. But at the same time, you end up blurring the line between who's an independent contractor and who's truly an employee. And then Uber has actually argued that drivers are merely consumers of its technology, just like passengers, blurring another category between what it means to work and what it means to consume. And so do you think, is it a matter of, of knowing what we're dealing with? Because there is this big push to bring uh, ride sharing to BC. Is it a matter of just know, know what it is that you're inviting into your workplace or into your, into, the, the, into your province, into your city, and go from there? Or is it, is it, is it kind of more of a buyer beware? I think it's a little bit of buyer beware, but also... Take a look around and see that Uber is not merely there to extend a taxi service with technology. It's also potentially setting up a different template for working relationships. And it's setting up a different template for how cities you know, negotiate their public infrastructure. I know, unlike Facebook or Google, which are on your phone and which you know, their infrastructure is kind of hidden away in data centers, cars are in the streets. You know, they are of a public concern. And so they have a bit they end up with a whole different milieu of stakeholders. And so I think what cities that are still looking to bring Uber in because it's such a popular service can learn from the experiences of other cities is that is what they're going to need. You know, they're going to need data on how many cars are in the road. And that seems like a really simple ask, right? A new, a new service is coming. They want to land. Uh, you know, what does the city need to make sure that Uber is providing services in underserved areas, for example, which is a promise that Uber often makes about what it's capable of doing. They need data. And the companies, both Uber and Lyft as well, have been loath to even disclose how many drivers are on the road, like a very basic requirement. So much so that the city of San Francisco, Uber's hometown, had to hire computer scientists to find out through pinging the APIs of those companies how many cars were on the road. Like they had to find alternative ways 
not through the front door of the companies that might agree to share data, but through all these back doors to figure out what was happening. And so cities and regulators end up in this game of playing catch-up, as do drivers. And I think what Vancouver can learn is, okay, what do we need up front to ensure that this is like a good service and continues to be a good service for our consumers in the longer term and not just in the short term? All right. We'll leave it there. Alex Rosenblatt, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, a new report has been released by West Coast Leaf, and it takes a look at why women often do not report sexual assault and make that report in the criminal justice system. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Alana Prochak, Manager of Public Education at West Coast Leaf. Alana, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, talk a bit, uh, before we get into some of the findings, if you can, how, how did, was the information gathered and, and what did this report, uh, who, did, uh, who was spoken to and interviewed and, and uh, what was, how was this gathered to get this information? Mm-hmm. So um, this is very much a collaborative uh, project. And first and foremost, I want to thank the survivors who are so generous and courageous to share their stories and their voices are really at the heart of the report. Um, the organization I work for, West Coast Leaf, which is a feminist uh, law and policy organization, partnered with YWCA of Metro Vancouver. And YWCA did a recruitment of participants and interviewed them. And all that methodology is described in the report. Um, essentially, we were looking for self-identified women survivors who had um, experienced sexual assault in BC within the last five years. That was later extended to seven years to increase the pool of participants um, who hadn't, who did not have a current uh, police or court involvement with uh, the sexual assault, to talk about what the uh, decision was like of whether to report or not, and if they did report. Uh, how did they find that experience? What were the barriers for them? So it's uh, the most underreported uh, criminal offense in this country. Uh, one of the numbers in the report, 5% of sexual assault survivors report uh, the experience to police. Uh, it's such a low number. Did you get a sense as to why it's such a small percentage of women that report? Mm-hmm. We heard so much about the barriers, and I just want to be clear, the point of the report is not at all to say that, you know, all survivors should report or that that's the path to healing and justice for everyone, but just that for some people it is part of their path, and yet they st- they find that huge barriers stand in their way. So um, some of the reasons for not reporting that survivors shared with us were um, concerns about being automatically disbelieved or blamed. We know that there are Um, victim-blaming assumptions in our culture, and they can find their way into the criminal justice system as well. Um, Worries about discrimination. So um, the rates of violence are very different, and also the fears about um, what might happen in the justice system and the realities of what can happen in the justice system for Indigenous women, for example, uh, who face more than three times the rate of sexual assault, women with disabilities, and the list goes on. Many survivors were concerned about re-traumatization through the process of talking to police and going through the court system. And we heard a lot as well about the personal consequences that can come with reporting, which could include economic consequences if someone's financially dependent on the perpetrator or unwanted legal consequences such as uh, child protection system involvement or deportation. And it, it was just 
for a lot of people, um, although they might see some benefits in reporting, the disadvantages far outweigh those for them. Do you think what we see in the more high-profile cases also is is a factor in this? And, and the one that comes to mind, because it's so recent, is uh, Christine Blasey Ford. And we see somebody who went through who was publicly ridiculed at all of the things that you just said. In many cases, she wasn't believed. She she was threatened. She okay. she Her life certainly was made more difficult by coming forward with the, her allegations. Uh, when we see things like that happen on such a public stage, do you think that has an impact as well? I think absolutely that can have an impact um, because people are under such pressure to kind of perform this ideal victim role. And yet it, it seems like almost no matter what you do, there's kind of like uh, going to be people questioning whether like that's a credible way of telling your story. So like one example in the report is um, we heard from people who became understandably emotional um, when talking to police. Like, for example, one person um, broke down crying when talking to a police sketch artist and was described as uncooperative. And yet there's also research that shows that people who uh, report their story in an unemotional way are less likely to be believed. So it's such a double bind. And I feel like um, that does play out in lots of examples we see in the media and it plays out in people's lives too. So I think for sure those kinds of um, judgments and um, pressures can definitely be a factor. Uh, and one of the, the findings in the report, too, is uh, when, when it looked at or when talking to uh, Indigenous women, uh, was the, the finding that, that there, there is such a higher level of sexual abuse and it happens on, in, in such a much more frequently, almost to the point where women came to expect it and almost weren't treating it like assault or like abuse. How do, you, how do we even begin to, to try and fix that? Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to be clear. Yes, um, devastatingly higher rates of sexual violence impacting Indigenous women, more than three times as likely to be sexually assaulted as their non-Indigenous counterparts. Um, there was a, in the report, there were a range of kind of repercussions described for Indigenous women, one of which was that, yes, some uh, women may kind of uh, normalize uh the experience, but for others, like there was it described as well, they might um, just see like a glaring gap between how Canadian law views that uh, offense and how Indigenous legal traditions and Indigenous communities view it and and um, really view it as uh, a very serious uh, violation. So I, I wouldn't want to generalize about sort of not viewing it as uh, an offense. Um, really diverse experiences there. Um, in terms of how we begin to address that, you won't address that without addressing the root cause of um, ongoing colonialism and uh, all the socioeconomic inequalities and um, all of the unjust sort of legal frameworks that we have. So it's like a very deep problem with a deep history. So um, hard to give kind of a quick answer to that one. Uh, what do you, where, where do we go with the findings in the report? I mean, the the goal, I would imagine, is to stop sexual assault, to stop sexual abuse. But, I mean, a couple of takeaways from it is if perpetrators know that the crime's not being reported, then there are no repercussions for the perpetrators. And, and also women then not having this avenue to go down if they choose to report or they don't feel comfortable doing that. What, what, where do you, what do we do now, do you think, with this information? Mm-hmm. Um, well, West Coast Leaf is engaging in a one-year 
minimum process with uh, some people who work in the criminal justice system in different ways to try to do some action planning with them and support them to make some concrete changes. So we won't be able to report on the outcomes for a bit, but we are really um, pleased to have people on board who do see the need for changes. So um, that is an ongoing process. I also think that um, the attitudes that can show up in policing and in the courts have deep roots in our culture. So it's on all of us, I think, to speak up if we hear someone, you know, making some kind of horrifying, like asking for it comment or implying that, um, you know, survivors are usually not telling the truth or making things up. We know that, in fact, false reports of sexual assault are extremely rare. Um, And we should challenge the myth that there's one right way to respond to sexual assault. In fact, everyone's really different and um, all reactions are are so valid. And I think there's some cultural work to be done to kind of bust some of those myths. And there was one finding in the report as well that while there's been uh, the reporting rate for sexual assaults has been on the decline, uh, the exception or one exception to that is uh, the reporting of sexual assault within relationships has actually gone up. Uh, Do we have any idea why there's that difference or there's that one exception? I'm not totally sure uh, the reasons for that. I will just note, though, that the overall reporting rate in Canada between 2016 and 2017 did actually go up by 8%. And um, that may be part of the social movements that we see happening to, um, you know, really name experiences of, of sexual assault and recognize how prevalent they are and how devastating they are, like Me Too. Um, and not just that movement, but just increasing conversation. So it's an example of how that cultural shift I talked about can um, also impact reporting rates. All right. Uh, We will leave it there, uh, but very interesting uh, report. Alana, thank you so much uh, for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, the B.C. government has launched 53 prototype projects around the province. They will be providing childcare, costing families a maximum of $200 per month per child. They're being funded in part from the Early Learning and Child Care Agreement with the Government of Canada. And we've heard from some of the parents at some of the sites that have been chosen for this. One of the sites, Frog Hollow Daycare in Vancouver, with parents saying this will be a huge help when it comes to affordability and the opportunity to find affordable daycare. Let's bring in Sharon Gregson, an advocate for the $10 a day child care plan. Sharon, great to have you back on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, What are your thoughts on the fact that uh, this step has been taken and we now know a bit more about the 53 projects so far? Well, how refreshing to have government actually deliver on their campaign commitments. This is exactly what British Columbia needs, the start of a quality, affordable childcare system. And implementing these 10-a-day prototypes is exactly moving in the right direction. And the number 10 a day, I mean, we've been talking about this for several years. That number hasn't changed. Where does the number come from that child care should cost $10 a day? Right. So we launched the $10 a day child care plan in 2011 based on evidence and research both in Canada and from around the world on what is an affordable contribution for most families to make. 
and then what the cost would be for different levels of government to make up the difference in operating. So no fees at all for families who make less than $40,000 a year. And the rest funded the way that we fund elementary schools, for example, through public funding. And the benefit of childcare, of course, is that when parents can access childcare, then they're participating often in the workforce and paying income tax to provincial and federal governments. So it's uh, childcare really is one of those good news stories, and ten a day is the affordable price. Uh, looking at uh, what's been done, though, in Quebec, which has had a subsidized daycare uh, for quite some time, uh, the numbers are quite high. I think 2017, it cost about $2.3 billion. That's a lot more than the money that would be put back into the system from getting parents back into the workforce. Uh, it isn't really. The Quebec childcare system is paying for itself. Often people just look at the expenditures without also looking at what the economists point out, which is the number of women primarily that are participating in the workforce because of access to childcare and the taxes that they are paying and the money that they're spending in their local economy. So that's the expectation and the, the evidence from other jurisdictions. And we know that that's what uh, will happen in British Columbia too. Uh, Although I I would say there are some arguments that the Quebec system doesn't pay for itself, that the government actually spends more than $9,000 per child in these childcare spaces, that it's it's highly expensive. It is more than what what the, the benefit is as far as bringing in more money. Well, if you look at the research of the Canadian economist Pierre Fortin, for example, who points to the 12, first 12 years of the Quebec childcare system, allowing 70,000 more women to access the workforce. And in fact, if you look at when the Quebec childcare system was introduced in 1998, both BC and Quebec had a below the Canadian average in women participating in the workforce when they had young children. After that, the Quebec childcare system, affordable system, was introduced. The number of Quebec women participating in the workforce it started to exceed the Canadian average, whereas BC has dropped below the Canadian average because of our unaffordable, inaccessible childcare system here. So it has a definite impact on women's participation in the workforce. And yes, when women are working, paying taxes, spending money, that's good for the economy. And what do you say to critics of this that say there's no means testing, this is universal for anybody, which means there are families that are bringing in six-figure salaries that are making a good salary, a good wage, and are still getting getting $10 a day daycare, are still getting subsidized daycare? Right, the same families earning six figures who are attending their local elementary school and not paying any user fees at all. That's the way it is with a publicly funded accessible system. Those same families go to the library and borrow a book without paying for it the same way that you or I do. They go to hospitals, they call 911, they drive on roads and bridges. Those are all the services that we fund publicly. The expectation is that those families with the six-figure incomes and higher are paying more in income tax as they should and making their contribution to the system that way. Right, but people put their send their children to school because it's law. No one's forced to put their children in childcare. 
right? But when we look at all the evidence around brain development, we know that there's uh, more advantages to children to accessing high-quality childcare in the early years, more benefit than even at university. So if we're looking at healthy communities, that's what we want to invest in. Nobody makes you go to the library and borrow a book. We don't make rich families buy all their books. We welcome them at the local swimming pool to pay the same rate that you or I would pay. We don't make them pay more because they have higher salaries. And I, so we need to change our mindset. So we start thinking about childcare, about being good for kids, not just in the marketplace as a commodity. Uh, the the 53 prototype uh, projects were announced. Uh, I know any parent and some of the parents uh, have uh, spoken about uh, being involved in these and uh, how happy they are about that. Uh, is there a concern that uh, there's now this uneven playing field that if you happen to be in, in one of those projects, you now benefit from that while other parents are still going to have to be waiting for this to happen? Well, it's important to note that the 10-a-day prototypes are one piece of the Childcare BC program that's rolling out. So starting last April, something called the Fee Reduction Initiative was launched, which so far has lowered fees for more than 50,000 children across the province in group childcare and family licensed childcare. Starting in September, a few months ago, the affordability benefit was launched, which is a subsidy for low and middle income families. So when you take those pieces as well, um, you start to see that more, more, most actually children in licensed childcare are benefiting from one form of those lower fees. The big push is not so much now on the affordability because there are significant moves in that area. The big push is to get more spaces created because that's where the big problem is with long waiting lists. Uh, I also spoke with a, a child care provider, uh, a family-based, a home-based child care provider. Her concern is that those types of providers are going to be pushed out under this system and it's going to move to a much more uh, institutional type daycare system. Do you have concerns about that as well? Well, I disagree with that provider. There's no evidence of that and no plan for that. All the measures that have been introduced so far by government and all the plan from the $10 a day advocates is to include licensed family child care as well as licensed group care. All right, Sharon Gregson, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time this morning, but I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us again Anytime. this morning. It's my pleasure, Jill. Bye for now.